time on the podcast. Is that the intro song? Maybe, maybe. We need like the a... The meta um, intro song? Yeah, we need like a name. Like a couple's ship name, as the kids call it. Ryan and Sam. Ryan. 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 Samyan. Sam. Salmon. Salmon. Like the fish. Like a little fishy. Because we're a cute couple that swims upstream. Ah, that's adorable. And then gets eaten by a grizzly bear. No! That's what happens. Haven't you seen the nature docs? I have, and I have. Haven't you seen the latest high-def nature docs? They're cute until they're not. They're cute until they're savage. So, yeah, this is a weird way to start our first podcast. Hi! Hey! Hello. Hello there. Hello, Rudy. Rudy's here too. You can't hear him, but... He's a little kitty cat plodding around our living room. Yeah, a little black and white cat. He's our he's the podcast mad mascot. Mad yeah. mascot. Oh, we need to get him a little No, let's not get him an outfit. I hate that. I don't hate that. I just dress him up as a microphone. I just... It's very meta. <laughs> Adorable. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we should start by talking about what we're actually gonna talk about. That makes sense. About what the podcast yeah, is. Yeah, what are we doing here? Okay, so the idea for the podcast was essentially, it arose when, whenever we'd have these like long, like crazy, like two, three hour conversations just on the sofa back and forth. Sometimes they're not on the sofa, you know. Sometimes I've realized we'll be like, oh my God, I'm so tired, let's go to bed. And then we lie in bed for like two and a half hours talking about all this different stuff like oh my god guess what i read today it's like we couldn't find time in the day to talk about it so we had to talk about it before bed and usually when we have these conversations it's kind of sparked by one of us saying oh i read this interesting thing online and then this crazy like multi-hour conversation results and one of us usually says oh man we should have recorded that as a podcast yeah not to build up these conversations too much but Yeah, yeah i know oh my god People are going to be expecting magic. We think they're interesting conversations by our standards. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was... And then we kind of just thought, okay, let's do a podcast where we do that, where we talk about the interesting things we've read online recently. Yeah. And so here we are, episode one. Here we are, talking about stuff. I don't know why I keep... That's a nervous thing, guys. You sing when you're nervous? Yeah. I just... Well, actually, I know I do it all the time anyway, but I think I'm doing it more especially now because I am nervous and I think it's okay to say that I'm nervous like even though it is just me and you in the room and we're talking there is that air of like in another universe or on another time level someone is listening to this right now even though it could be like 10 years from now so we're essentially live you're you're I think I just blew my own mind you're overwhelmed by the four listeners you're thinking of like a (laughs) arena stadium with like four people in the seats and us in the middle just talking into microphones yeah something like that that. can be pretty overwhelming when you've got such a you know diminutive audience that could potentially be totally went in different directions yeah yeah Yeah. definitely i was busy having my mind blown we're a salmon that swims upstream what don't you get about this we go in different directions so i think we should just move on to one of the first topics that i've so yeah, what have you what have you read that was interesting recently? Well, of course, at the center of like you know a lot of people's lives is social media, and I know that you're 
one of the exceptions, dear Ryan, because you don't have social media. Yeah, I just never really got on the train. And then more and more, I only saw people talking. Like when Facebook became like a thing, there was like an initial period of excitement where people were like, this is this, this new interesting thing. But then it quickly slid into this long stagnation of people becoming jaded about it. And so if I didn't jump in at the first part, there was just no incentive to jump in after that. And so it's been pretty easy to, yeah. to not make a social media presence. Two things, though. One, you're not like anti-social media, right? No, I don't think it's inherently a bad thing. It's just not something that, you know, I lie awake thinking about not having a, a Twitter page. <laughs> I really, I can't imagine you like doing up on Facebook and then like finding all your old school friends and things. It's just not oh, the type of no. thing. Kill me now. Yeah. So, anyway, so I was on Reddit, you know, as you do, and um, in the, in our ask, I saw a thread, what would make you unfollow a friend on social media? And this stood out to me because I've recently unfriended a few people on Facebook. You had a purge. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause a pogrom, would you say? Usually it's more, it's not like, oh, I'm going to go through and delete people I don't speak to, although I have done that before. It's more just like you see something they pose and it's like, okay, that's so cross the line. Because especially if you, you're not friends, like real friends with this person and you don't chat that often, you really only communicate by liking each other's things and commenting here and there. You only know about them what they post. And if all they post is like stuff that kind of makes them seem like an idiot or offensive in some way, I'm not, I don't want to be friends with you, even if it's, you know, air quote friends. So <laughs> this kind of stood out to me. Well, I think that's kind of a <clears throat> phenomenon of having online quote unquote friends. Like if you, if you know someone in real life and you add them on Facebook, if you've known them in real life, chances are they're not going to post some crazy, you know, racist stuff and you just never picked up on you've known them for 10 years and they've never said anything racist and then as soon as you friend them on facebook you find out they're like yeah you know an insanely like fervent racist that usually doesn't happen but when you just meet someone online <clears throat> or you know you kind of friend them vicariously through facebook they are ultimately still a mystery to you and so you're finding out about them more by more day by day by yeah. their posts although you'll be surprised what people think is acceptable slash not offensive just in terms of like maybe you have known someone and maybe they're not as blatant to say certain things in front of people live but they will kind of like you know subtly like like something because some of these things aren't just the artist posts that I've seen people I'm friends with repost. It's such and such reacted to this, and you can see what they, what they, whether they like it or not, basically. So anyway, I I thought this was interesting. I kind of picked out some of the things that stood out to me as people's reasons. Okay. Um, <laughs> this one's funny. Posting a picture of your child's first poo. Sure. And this goes along with another one, baby pictures. Like, I find myself more and more just scrolling by, like, 20 baby pictures from various people. And I'm like, what has this become? Because more and more I go on Facebook actually for, like, the articles and stuff for people I follow. It's actually less about friends, more about, you know, 
whatever organization or whatever thing that I'm following, whatever blog I'm following. So then when that's kind of like coupled with like a million baby pictures, I can kind of see that. Well, that's one of those things <clears throat> where if you're a parent and it's pictures of your baby, it's like endlessly, infinitely fascinating. Like you could take 50 photos of your baby throughout the day and you would look back at them and be like, oh man, it's so interesting. Like at morning, in the morning he was doing this and at night he was doing this and then he was on the playground. But if you're outside of it, it's like uh, 50 photos of a, yeah. just a random baby. And it's cute or whatever. But after that first photo, it's kind of like, I, I have no real exactly. interest in this. Because to me, they all look the same, you know, with the odd exception. It's like baby doing this, baby smiling at this. And I'm like, oh, all right, I get it. I know what your baby looks like now. You're saying once you've seen one baby, you've yeah. seen them all. Well, kind of. You're such a jaded baby consumer. (laughs) Well, I am what they call a child-free person. I don't have kids. I don't wish to have kids. And I don't hate kids, obviously. But as someone who isn't a parent and no part of my life is consumed by, you know, I don't have friends who have kids. That's a lie. (laughs) I just lied. My best friend has kids, but she doesn't Did live in Do you think this- someone was going to fact check yeah. the podcast, go through and, and check all your Facebook friends? All of a sudden, I was like, no, that's a lie, that's a lie. The Inquisition is coming, I better fess up now. No, my best friend has kids, but she lives in a different country, and so we don't get... I've never met her kids in person. I do interact with them sometimes when we FaceTime, but... No part of my life, really, is consumed by anything to do with kids, and... Um, so when I then am on some kind of whatever social media platform and it's filled with pictures of children, I am kind of all of a sudden like, what is going on here? I didn't subscribe to this. Like, it's not the type of thing I would choose to look at. Um, and so I kind of get that. That's one of the things where I was like, yeah, like, that might make me want to unfollow someone if all they do is post pictures of the baby and I don't communicate with them in any other way. Because then it's kind of like, what's the point? You're not getting anything from it. I think that's a fair position to have. You're basically just saying, I don't have any problem with with kids or people posting their kids, but I don't find it interesting. So if that's all that you are kind of posting, then you know following your posts isn't very interesting to me yeah i think that's fair it's not like you're angry at them it's just there's not a compatibility there yeah rudy come on our cat's trying to escape out out the window window. (laughs) he wants to go on adventures in the night (laughs) he's not allowed we're like a floor up so he would be in very badly for you he's made a little parachute he stole a pillow and some (laughs) shears and slowly over time he made a little cat parachute because he's secretly been having communications with the bird across the way and they're gonna meet up they're like in love it's like a tryst <gasps> oh, this is weird this is adorable. cross-species <laughs> romance okay so others were and i found this kind of interesting um i'm following or friending someone because all they do is post pictures of themselves and they look like their partner like, and the description was, like, I unfollowed someone because they post a selfie in the morning when they're having breakfast. They post a selfie in the, in the afternoon when they're having lunch. They post a couple selfie making out at the cinema. They post, do you know what I mean? So it's constant, like, look at us, we're in love. And I found this interesting because, to me, I would find that nice and sweet and I would be, ah, oh, you know, all over the place. 
and I don't know this, and this is just a pure assumption, but the, the I got the feeling that the person who put posted this was single and didn't, and that's why. It's kind of like when single people hate Valentine's Day. Yeah, I don't really understand this one as much because social media is about posting your life, yourself. Yeah. Like, selfies have... I think to kind, you'd have to be quite curmudgeonly, like, you know anti-modernism to be like this whole selfie trend i can't stand it like i think that that is maybe a bridge too far at this point like selfies are the new kind of social currency like look how pretty i look when i went to this location look at this interesting place i visited that's how people document things and surely if you're following that person whether you're actually friends or not is because you want to see parts of their life um i mean either that or it's because they I don't know. I mean, there are lots of reasons why you can follow someone, but surely that's not going to be one of the reasons why you unfollow, you know? And I think this kind of comes back to what if it's then really it's just like a family member who you're friends with because you're family and that, you know, the reason why you can't unfriend them or unfollow them because of these silly reasons is because you're family. And that's why I don't have family on my Facebook because... I don't want to constantly be thinking, should I post this because of my family or whatever. Plus, there's lots of people that I wouldn't want to follow in my family for whatever reason. So I I kind of get, like, I can kind of understand it, but at the same time, it seems kind of weird slash just grumpus. Well, like you said, it depends. Like, if you're interested in that person and what they're doing in their life, it's fine. But if you're not, then... it's not interesting and so it becomes kind of this abrasive thing but it's all about it's kind of like to go back to the baby picture thing it's about moderation if you spam 50 selfies of you and your partner (laughs) going to like this what like here's 50 photos of us at the cinema it's like that that then becomes a a problem but if you post one photo then it's like there's no issue it's all about scale about moderation that makes me think when people say, oh, such and such, I had to f- unfollow them because they tweet too much. Um, That really confuses me. It's like, I don't understand why you're following them then, to see one tweet a day, one tweet a week. What's too much? Is it really just they tweet and you don't like the things they tweet about and therefore really it's like, oh my God, this is too much, I don't want to see this anymore? And I feel like that then falls into the oh, I don't like to unfollow or unfriend people because I don't want to hurt their feelings. And it's like, well, if you don't like someone, you don't like someone. I don't understand why you would spend your life like that. It doesn't make any sense to me. You're not doing someone a favour by pretending to be their friend on social media. That's just kind of condescending and... Like you, you pretend in they're so fragile that if they were somehow to find out you unfollowed them, it would like shatter their whole worldview. Doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, so moving on, let's move on to um, this one. This is a funny one, and I always see it. The copy and paste thing. And there are several iterations of this. There's um, where it's usually something really sad, like a cancer thing or a charity thing. And it's like, so in support of all the people, the one in three people or whatever it is that get cancer, copy and paste this to your status. And if you don't, you don't believe in God. And all these crazy things at the end, like you've got to do this. And if you don't do this, you you have no whatever. You have, it's all negative and horrible. And it's like, no, I don't want to copy and paste this. Stop it. I don't understand. 
I don't understand why because I feel like a lot of people who copy and paste it it's like they see it and they feel like if they scroll past it and don't copy and paste it it means that they don't have a heart and then that's how you kind of get lots of people copying and pasting it it just really bugs me well it's it's a disingenuous guilt trip it's basically just playing on people's fears of like it's playing on people's own fear about their character so like if you scroll past it after you've read it then you start to question like did i do that just because it's an annoying copy and paste thing or did i scroll past that because i don't care about whatever they're talking about like this cancer charity yeah and so it makes you question your own like motives and so then a lot of the times i guess people just go back and do it just to kind of placate that like inner doubt and the thing is it does nothing for the cancer or the charity because it's not like donate it's just this like heartfelt sad thing that's trying to guilt you into just kind of doing it and yeah i just i don't like it i mean obviously if you want to write something heartfelt and sad about cancer about someone you know that's gone through something you know really tragic and sad do it you know i feel like from my perspective i'm you have more chance of me engaging with your post if i know you've written it and it's something from your experience or something that you've observed but if it's like something i know you've copied and pasted and millions of other people are copying and pasting this thing that they probably might not have even read all the way through they just see that it's a copy and paste and it's about cancer it's about charity i don't it there's no meaning in it for me it's just getting and then the worst part is when people kind of passive the person who posts the copy and paste thing then goes on to like passive aggressively shamed all the people who haven't clicked yeah, on it the next post will be like to all the people who didn't retweet my my thing have you no heart oh it's terrible and that and it ma- ma- makes me remember now that a part of that copy and pasting is usually i know all of you won't do this i know only three of you will do this only 90 percent of you will do this or whatever it comes in but yeah it's just very annoying and so things can get constantly can you imagine following someone all they do is post these copy and pastes these pictures of their baby's poo and their loved up selfies so far that's a recipe to be unfollowed according to reddit um and then there are another few i guess which are really about what your stance is on like political things and religious things this is what i thought it was going to be about i was very surprised when we're free deep into this list and we haven't got to like offensive political statements these are the obvious ones though these are like you know racism obviously homophobia things like that um but then I guess it comes down to, um, in terms of like political views and religious views, um, are you then saying if you unfollow them that you can't kind of be friends with someone who has different views to you? But there's definitely a difference between posting in context something about your political view or your religious view and constantly spamming your timeline with like propaganda yeah whatever the especially if it is offensive but like you said earlier there's gradations of someone posting like this like four paragraph thing saying why support you know whatever donald trump or someone clicking like on a donald trump article like, where do you draw the line of, like, 
do I read into the fact that they've liked this and that's enough for me to kind of cut them out of my, you know, Facebook friends? Or does it have to be like an explicit, like, you know, affidavit of, of I support this guy and this is, if you don't support him, you're, yeah. you know, a danger to this country? Well, let me think. I feel like if I did seen one of my friends or followers like something that was about like Ted Cruz or say Trump wasn't running and say like they'd like something about Ted Cruz and then other people on my timeline had liked a bunch of stuff about Hillary. I'm like, okay, that's all right. People have different views. But at this point, I feel like if I did realise that one of my friends was a Trump supporter, if I was friendly enough with them to have a conversation about it, I'd have a conversation and I'd want to know why they think Trump is a good person to be president if i'm not friends with them and they're just one of those people that you end up kind of adding or following i would probably really just like unfollow them because then it's not really worth the hassle of yeah like it's like this person clearly is confrontation with decent. them because then they're probably going to turn around and say i don't even know you like why are you exactly me? yeah so i think the easy solution and the 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 path of least resistance for everyone is just to kind of part ways on Facebook mm. because no one's really getting their feelings hurt yeah. about that. Another, another um, example of this, something that actually happened, is that someone I was friends with, quote friends, not real friends, um, on Facebook, they constantly post stuff about God. I'm an atheist and, I mean, it doesn't bother me too much if you believe in whatever as long as you know you're not an extremist crazy person which most people are not um and you know most of the stuff she was posting was harmless it was just the usual i thank god for this day kind of like cheesy stuff that like kind of made me roll my eyes but it was fine but then you know when like There'll be, like, something really horrible happening, like, in France, you know, some of those recent horrible things. And and then straight away you see, like, God has a reason for everything. And I'm like, no, take your fucking God and fuck off. That's what I want to say. Like, when they constantly post weird shit like that after horrible, like, horrible, tragic stuff happens... And they're trying to say that, like, it's all in God's plan and God works in mysterious ways. I just can't. Then I just can't. And again, this wasn't a person I was friends friends with and so I didn't feel like having the conversation. Plus, I I don't want to attack someone for their beliefs. So I thought the best, most peaceful thing to do was to just unfriend them because I didn't want to look at it anymore. It's very diplomatic of you. Yeah. But I get it because after those tragedies, everyone has that kind of raw nerve. And so when someone comes along with this kind of placation of you don't need to worry about all these people who died in the France massacre because God has a plan for everyone. It is kind of like downplaying it and trivializing it where people are still in that state of kind of vicarious grief where it's like the emotions are still running high and when someone comes along and tries to say that that's not warranted i think it's fair to then turn around and and be like you we we can't you know this can't continue anymore because we're just not on the same page at all and what you're what you're saying is kind of affecting me in a way i don't like 
Exactly. I don't think your your response to this is, you know, appropriate. And I think and that's pathetic. what. Yeah, I think that's what it really does come down to as well. In this whole, what makes you a follower and friend someone is, if it is making you feel a negative, um, especially if there's not a chance for you to talk to, or it's worth talking to that person about it then I'm not sure why you would want to be following that person because if you're constantly seeing that, it is going to have a negative effect on you if it's something you don't like. Um, And, you know, people check their Facebooks and Twitters or whatever several times a day. Some people are on it all day. And so you don't really want to... That stuff's going to seep in. And I don't see the point of having that negative stuff. (laughs) But then the other side is... You don't want to build an echo chamber for yourself where you're only seeing people who have the exact same views as you. You're never exposing yourself to different views. You have to, there has to be a midpoint where it's like some people have views that are so kind of toxic and obnoxious that there's just no value with coming into collision with them every day, day in and day out. those people are just kind of you just have to cut them out because there's there's no middle ground to be had there's no interest in dialogue and that's why i only agree with that sentiment of um you can still be friends with people if you have different views to a certain extent so yeah so that was my kind of yeah that was your yeah i thought it was going to be extremely light as a first topic but it didn't really end up being that light i mean there were lots of other reasons like silly reasons like drama filled stuff with couples and you know family stuff that you'll see if you're on like facebook or whatever but yeah i thought it was quite interesting to see people's different reasons was there kind of a through line in the Reddit thread of people saying, I do... Did everyone in the Reddit thread say, I do this? It was mostly just drama. Most people saying they don't like drama. That was basically the the main through line. Well, that's just a carryover of normal in-person Yeah, in, Yeah, you don't, yeah, exactly. No one wants that in real life and no one wants, you know, constant friction in social media. It's, but it's become the norm now to be like... Oh, this just happened, I'm going to post about it on Facebook or whatever. Like, that's just normal now. So if you are friends with people who have drama-filled lives, you're going to, of course, see that quite often. So, yeah, so that was my first topic. Well, if you thought that was that was going to be light and then it turned out to be, you know, heavy, wait yeah. till you hear my interesting okay, thing that I read because it's nice and, you know, pitch black. And it's kind of related to the social media thing. Oh, yeah? So I read a, I believe it was Washington Post article um, about a girl in America. She was 13. And it was basically a story. And of course, this is just kind of one of, you know, many, but it's kind of a illustrative example. It was about this 13-year-old girl who goes to high school and she sends some nude pictures to a boy that she has a crush on kind of naively and then it kind of documents this like implosion in her personal life where her life kind of falls apart and she kind of withdraws from school and she starts cutting and then this explosion in her kind of public life at school where people she becomes like a pariah and she's pushed away from her friends and she everyone in the school knows it she doesn't even want to go to a different school because she thinks that they have heard about it. 
and it's just this kind of tragic kind of very affecting piece about how this one bad decision by a 13 year old and you know 13 year olds make bad decisions all the time and it usually doesn't you know self-destruct their lives how she made this bad decision and then it just at least from her standpoint kind of ruined everything for her and i have to interrupt you here she sent photos to him yeah and then what happened so basically what happened was he shared it with one person to begin with if i remember yeah and then i feel like once that kind of barrier has been broached it's inevitable what's going to happen then because then he started sharing it around you know basically the whole school i find it interesting that you said she made a bad decision oh okay you're calling me out yeah I'm this calling is gotcha you out. journalism you said she made a bad decision to send her boyfriend or this boy it wasn't a boy it was just a, a guy that she had a crush on he was like the popular like yeah. handsome kid in the school he solicited those photos from her you know and then she sent them so yeah she go, sent go them on and take, take he, me to task yeah i am i'm going to she sent them yes maybe naively and a decision obviously i'm assuming she came to regret but inherently it's not something that you should judge someone by sending nude photos or whatever pictures. I think... But let's forget about their age for a second. We have to forget about their age for a second. He was the one who made the bad decision by sharing these. If someone sends you something like that, your automatic response should never be, oh, let's share these with everyone else. That's a shitty thing. That's a shitty, shitty thing to do. That's him. That's all him. That's not her. Okay, I think you're conflating two things and you're mistaken what I said. You seem to be under the impression that I'm imputing blame on her, like it was her fault. That's not what I meant to do. That's not what I was trying to say. But that was what your words implied. No, I said she made a bad decision. It was a, it was a unwise decision. It wasn't wise. I don't think you should but say that bad It wasn't decision. her fault that her life was ruined because her naked photos came out. She made a bad decision and then it was the guy's fault for being a jackass and sharing these around yes, the school. But I don't think you should use the word bad. I think you should okay, change Okay, I see that. what you're saying. Bad. She made an unwise decision. Yeah, okay. I see the connotations there. And then he did a fucking dirty deed yeah. that fucked everything for her. Yeah. People, what really annoys me is that people don't think about what's going to happen. Just like, oh, this is funny, lol. Like, you know, but this can affect this girl for the rest of her life. And it looks like it will. I just, I just can't. Like, it gets me so mad. Did anything happen to him? Like, does the article talk about what happened? Yeah, so that's what it goes on to. Basically, the theme of the article, if anything, is basically that this is a decision or this is a this is a an event that happens where it basically sucks everyone in and everyone kind of gets you know negative consequences as a result because he for a short while you know had some some he was able to benefit from this you know shitty decision he made to share them he, i guess he got kind of cred amongst his friend group but then as it came out that he had done this to several girls in the school uh. in exactly the same way the, the article basically says that apparently, and they couldn't be sure because he's a minor and they don't release legal records for minors, but apparently he was charged with the obvious like possession of 
child pornography, like, you know, soliciting. Yeah. Um, is it still child pornography if the other person is a child as well? Well, that's if it's ki- two children? That's kind of an evolving legal situation across yeah. the world. But I think w- wherever this was, the laws on the books was, were that kind of rigid, like, if you have this type of pictures, yeah. you are guilty of this crime. And so basically he... You know, he blew up his own life as well. He's getting charged with these horrendous crimes, which are probably going to, you know, stay on his record forever, completely, you know, limit the things that he's going to be able to do in his life. And so basically it was, that was the theme of the article. Like everyone's life was kind yeah. of the worst off because but let's of this. be clear by saying hers is the most affected. do you think i'm like i know anti not, this girl i'm like you not. got what was coming to you of course and i know you so i know that's not how, how dare you, you impugn my motives but i just for people who don't know you i just want to call you out <laughs> how dare you basically <laughs> because basically how is, this, fair? How is yes, this good it affects him yes it affects everyone who then went on to share it because they're all little douchebags and you know People who know about it, they're going to be like, oh, you're the guy who, oh, that's horrible. I'm not going to hire you or whatever when he gets older. He might not get into the college that he wants to get into. But she can be negatively affected in so many ways, not just about getting jobs or getting positions in school or whatever, but her self-esteem, her trust issues, so many things. And it just really infuriates me and upsets me deeply that that people will just do things whether they actually know the consequences of it or not um i don't know what's worse actually but it's just awful 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 stuff and i mean i don't even use the cloud because i'm so paranoid about what can get leaked or what can get hacked or whatever and i just wish people I mean, they shouldn't have to, but I wish people would think twice before sending things like that because you don't know what's going to happen. Well, that's I had I basically had the same reaction as you're having right now. It's not as, you know, at the forefront for me right now because I've read this article, you know, about a week ago, I think. Um, but when you read it, that's why I find it so interesting because it is such a visceral, like, empathy you feel for this girl. You, you see her life crumble. Yeah. Um, and you do feel that anger towards the the guy. You feel that, like, how dare you, you know, manipulate her into doing this. And then, you know, do something which I don't care how naive you are as a 13-year-old. You have some conception of the consequences for this girl if you share her naked photos yeah. around. And so, yeah, when you read it, it is this very kind of, it grips you and you're like, there's so many powerful emotions it makes you feel. Because a 13-year-old is... Like, you think of a 13-year-old girl crying at home and cutting herself because, you know, some guy at school did this horrendous thing and you can't help but yeah. be moved and feel and feel those strong emotions. I mean, I have a cousin who's 12 and I just can't... Maybe, I mean, I feel like I would be this upset and mad if I heard about this from anyone. You're always hearing about people people's photos getting leaked or, you know, that whole revenge porn thing. That's horrible and horrendous. And when you really think about it, you it's a it's a rabbit hole. You just get you just get tumbling, tumbling down it, all the emotions. And all the, the people that don't get don't um have to suffer consequences. I had a brain blank. <laughs> don't have to suffer consequences because of it. 
in this particular case, in this particular moment, you telling me about this, I think because they are so young, it's like they haven't had that many chances to mess up and they're messing up in such a massive way so early and I just it's just upsetting it's like some things you can't get over it's just a fact people can talk about you know with the right therapy and the right whatever and the right guidance and you know everything's going to be different but what if it's not some of these things really do negatively impact people forever and I just wish that they didn't happen there are lots of things to wish that didn't happen, but right now, I just wish this hadn't happened. But why this article was so interesting to me is because, like I said, it is just one of so many examples of this happening right now. We are in this period yeah. of growing pains where kids are now, every kid has like, you know, a phone that can send pictures and videos. And so, and that's a re- that's a relatively new phenomenon. Um, and so we're in this in-between period of, in between when it first starts to you know seep into that younger generation and then later on when they that younger generation understands the dangers associated with it we're in this kind of limbo right now where it's new and so all the dangers are at their most present and at their most kind of um unperceived by young people like that so i feel like this is going to be this is going to be what it is until there's like comprehensive um education of young people about this is why it's so dangerous to take photos Mm. like of yourself in a compromised position and send them to someone else it must be so hard for parents sometimes to whether to decide to give them a phone or not and at what age especially now when they're using iPads in school and they're giving you iPads to take home and they have cameras too. And when half the class has got a mobile phone, you know, the kid's best friend has got a mobile phone, that's all they want. It's like, at what point do you say, okay, I think you're ready? And I know there are obviously things on the phone you can, like, um, put controls on there, safety features and stuff, but... um, most kids, if they want to do something, they're going to find a way. I mean, you know what it was like when you weren't, you had rules in place and you couldn't do certain things. You pretty much always found a way to do it. Um, but yeah, I was just thinking to myself when you were talking, something you said made me think, at what age do you even give your kid a phone like that, that has other capabilities? Well, that's something that the girl's parents talk about in the article. They're quoted a few times. And one of the things they they kind of ruefully, you know, look back on and kind of lament was they talk about the discussion they had of when do we give our daughter a phone? When is she ready for it? And I think the mom kind of says, you know, what are we going to do? Wait till she's 18 to finally give her this. And then she goes off the deep end and does something really bad. But they didn't realize that it could happen even when you're 13. Yeah, that's the problem with rules and like... Um, strict things like that sorry is that you have to find a balance because if you do limit every single thing there will be a a tipping point there will be a a point where the kid kind of explodes because they were had rules so many rules growing up or whatever you've seen it all the time but um so yeah I do think it's just really important to find 
This is why it's important to have a really good relationship with your kids, an open, honest relationship where you have open, honest dialogues about everything, you know? Because if you do that, then the chances are your kids going to be like, they're going to start to question certain things with you in mind and they'll come to talk to you. They'll know they can come and talk to you about certain things, you know? I don't know. I just, it's really upsetting. Well, you never want your kid to be hiding something from you. Like if this girl, like not, you know, I'm not trying to um, disparage this girl's parents in this case, but just hypothetically, if you did have a really, really close um, relationship with your kid so that when this boy that they have a crush on in school is kind of buttering them up and trying to solicit like, you know, nude pictures you'd hope that they would be able to come to you even you know kind of overcome their own embarrassment and their own kind of inclination to keep this as their own secret come to you and say listen i need some help i've i've got this dilemma i really like this guy and he's asking me for these photos and i don't know whether to send them or not and then you could kind of avert disaster like that but that requires such a unique um relationship between the child and the parents that doesn't go on now now like most of the time parents are too kind of i don't know what the word is embarrassed or squeamish and they kind of squirt they kind of skirt around are you laughing because i said squirt (laughs) how dare you my mind was in the gutter at a really bad time yeah yeah it's been a child how dare you and so yeah they they kind of skirt around the fact that you know, the, what is a reality is that there are going to be people who try and manipulate you to get yeah. these things and you have to know when to resist it and when to trust someone. That should, they should def- I know everyone's always talking about this and this should be introduced into schools. So it's, and I think to myself, uh, there's going to be a point where, you know, the school is bursting with how many classes on all these different things. But there are things that need to be taught that aren't taught, whether it's by the parents or the school or both, like consent, um, that definitely should have its own kind of like class within a class, you know, in terms of sexual education. Um, But yeah, if you are kind of open about the kind of squeamishy, like, personal oh it's naked bodies like kind of thing with your kids like me myself personally and I know this is not as common if a boy was trying to get me to send him naked photos if I didn't want to I would have spoken to my mom about it um when you were 13 though that young yeah but the difference is she sent the photos So you've got to at least think that there's a chance that she wanted to send the photos. Obviously, we don't know whether she was pressured into sending the photos or what, but let's say she wanted to send the photos. He asked, she said yes, and she felt good about it at the time. If I wanted to then send the photos, I'm not going to say to my mom, oh, Tommy wants me to send him photos and I'm going to. Like... You know, what do you think about this? Because I know that my mom's not going to want me to, whether I'm 13 or 23. Yeah. Like, she's not going to think like that. So even though we were saying there needs to be an open, honest dialogue, there are obviously still going to... We're not saying, you know, if there's an open, honest dialogue, we're going to talk about, you know, every single little detail. But 
there's more of a chance that she would go to someone if there were these open, honest dialogues and be like, this boy wants me to send him pictures, what do you think I should do? And then hopefully that person would be like, hmm, I don't think that's a very good idea. I mean, they weren't even boyfriend and girlfriend, right? So they didn't even have that kind of barrier that should be there to fall back on. Are you trying to shoot the cat? The cat is trying to, so you're trying to break interact the with the microphone. He wants to talk to you all. He says, what's this? I want to be involved. Yeah, he's a curious little kitty. In his little cat voice. What do you think he would sound like if he could speak? Like a English gentleman. I say, old chap. Give I me say. some more catnip. <laughs> That's adorable. Just imagine him with a little monocle and a scarf. And a little moustache, a cat moustache, uh-huh. made of white cat whiskers. That's kind of adorable. That is adorable. So, yeah. Well, my, my other question would be, although it's easy to kind of hate the boy in this story, it's easy to kind of just heap blame and kind of acrimony on him by saying he's a douchebag, he's a monster, he did this, he betrayed a trust. How much, how fair is that? Like, at some point, do you have to say they're both 13 and so their culpability for this kind of decision is lowered because of it. Yeah, I'm not necessarily saying he should be treated like an adult, for instance. An adult who should know that that's wrong. Um, at the end of the day, he's still a child. He should still face consequences. But say, for instance, I don't know what would happen. But like, say, for instance, if this got took to court. Um, I'm not saying he should be treated like an adult. Um but he should still be treated like someone who they should test basically they can figure out whether he knows right from wrong and if you know right from wrong you should know that this is wrong and i think 13 is old enough to know that that's wrong well i think he's going to know that he did something wrong when it destroys his life but the question is did at the time did he know did he do this maliciously thinking i want to ruin this girl's life or was he just did he just have that naivete of thinking i'm going to show this to one or two people it's going to increase my cred with this you know little friendship group i've got and then it won't doesn't necessarily need to go any further well there's no way to know but also they are kind of just as bad as each other he shouldn't share it with anyone so i know what you're saying in terms of like was he being malicious we can't know that but he did still share it with at least one person and whether his the intent was there to destroy this girl's life or not, he should have known that he shouldn't have shared it with anyone. And so that's kind of... I can't really see past that at the moment because I'm still in that first reaction phase. But, yeah. I'm trying to focus on your well-articulated moral stance, but Rudy is right behind me chowing down on his cat food and it seems so loud to me. I don't know whether the microphones are picking it up. If you can hear it, we apologise and I'm sure it's yummy. It's kind of a nice sound though because you know that he's eating, you know that he's... Spoken like a true cat popper. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the sign of a cat popper? I'm actually thinking about all this food. Okay, so what's the, the next topic? Okay, so the next topic is is actually an article I read a while ago but then saw again yesterday. Um, 
you know, with with like social media and stuff, things usually always do come back around at least once because someone new is just recently sharing it or whatever. So the thing I saw was it was about Brexit. Ooh, boo! And uh, <laughs> I I like how you didn't back me up at all. No, I just stared at you, booth. stony you face, as you right introduced down. your like impromptu sound effects. I was not I live feel, action sound effects. I'm feel silly now. For listeners at home, there's no soundboard. She made those sounds <laughs> with her own mouth. So it it was basically after the Brexit vote. There were all those stories about how um, hate crimes had gone up. The percentage of hate crimes in um, the UK had gone up. I don't know how true it is because most of the articles I read, they weren't really giving statistics. It was more just like, it's gone up because this one thing happened or it's gone up because this other thing happened. So, you know, clearly from what was reported, um, things were happening. We don't know what the actual stats were. In response to this, someone um, kind of made a thing where they said they were going to wear a safety pin, just something plain and small and something that everyone has access to on the jacket or whatever they're wearing while they're out to kind of show that they are not in support of this whole, like... um, anti-immigrant stance that went along with a lot of what Brexit was. Um, For people that don't know or don't know as well, a big part of the whole um, Brexit campaign um, for the people who wanted to vote leave was... (sighs) It was tinted with a kind of anti-immigration Yeah, it was. And I feel like that, I'm not saying racism and hate crimes didn't happen before. They did happen. There are people that are racist. There are people that do hate crimes, commit hate crimes, rather. Do hate crimes. (laughs) Do hate crimes. It's a weird syntax. Um, But I feel like the results of Brexit almost gave people permission those people. Yeah, those people that already had it in them to kind of be more blatant about it or to be more obvious about it or instead of just thinking these things about people that they didn't like, they now thought they were able to say it because you had on TV and you had in the newspaper this fucking idiot, Nigel Farage, and his, you know, whole anti-immigrant stance... And I think it really did give people permission to just be horrible people. And so this safety pin was basically a way of saying without saying, I don't support that. I'm not racist. I'm with you, you know? And also a way if something was happening, I remember this was in the article, because there were lots of um, reports of people kind of being racist and hateful on public transport. And so it was a way to kind of say, it's safe for you to sit next to me because I am an ally, basically. And I know a lot of people hate those t- that type of language. Um, but it got me thinking. My first reaction was, I like this. Um 
I like this and it would be something that I would do because I really, really found myself after the results, every time I left the house, found myself wanting to say to people, I'm not one of those horrible leavers that that wants to get everyone who's not white and British out of the country. I'm not one of those people... I want to smile at you because that's what I would usually do and I don't, I, I don't want you to think I'm a part of that group because I'm not. And so I linked the two in my head. It was like, well, there you go. I could wear the safety pin and everyone would know. But it leads you down this weird path of like overcompensating and, you know, there's also, pe- you know, people in the comments saying, yeah, but then people who are racist and hateful could wear the safety pin and pretend to be an ally or whatever. And then next thing you know, it's a trap. And there was all these <laughs> horrible... Yeah. ever so slightly paranoid. Yeah, so sure. there was all these horrible things. Anyway, my instinct was is that it was a good idea. And I wanted to know what you thought about the whole thing. I like the sentiment behind it. I, I, that is my first reaction. Um, and I like your sentiment as a result of it, as of I want to make conspicuous displays of kindness to people who might be targeted by bigots. But the que- but two questions then sprang into my mind. Firstly, how widespread is this campaign? Because if everyone doesn't know that the paper, not the paper clip, that would be kind <laughs> of uh, that would be quite yeah. a, a small sh- sign of support. If everyone doesn't know that the safety clip means this, then it's a pointless campaign because yeah. if only like 20,000 people saw the Facebook page, then it it's a nice sentiment, but yeah. in reality, it's not going to But have I guess the idea is that whether you think people are going to know about it, you wear it and then it spreads. And then the more people that know about it. Sure. Yeah. And then the hope is that everyone's wearing a safety pin. You know what I mean? What's your other thing? My other thing is to play devil's advocate. Someone could say in response to your response, basically saying I want to be extra kind to people who might be targeted by anti-immigrant um, hatred. They might say, if you didn't do it before, doing it now is just you trying to, you know, virtue signal, trying to say, like, yeah. look how good I am. Well, yeah, I didn't want it to become this whole, you just want people, you're saying, it's like protesting too much. You're saying you want to say that you're not racist but because mm, maybe it, you've got guilt about yeah but it wasn't it feelings. wasn't about that i don't feel guilty i've never been racist and i'm not racist but my point my thing was i did find myself wanting to overcompensate but not for myself i wanted to overcompensate for the fucking horrible people with their fucking england flags and their vote leave fucking things in their windows it really really pissed me off because so many people didn't understand this campaign they just latched on to what hatred was already inside them and i'm not saying every person who voted leave is racist or hateful but i'm just saying that this whole thing was a massive part it really was and you can't deny that um so going back to your point 
I do smile at people. I smile at people all the time. Even when we lived in London and it's not a very smiley place because everyone's just busy rushing around. I always smiled at people and I hold the door open for people. And if there's an obvious chance to speak to someone and you make eye contact, I do. And it really is regardless of who they are or what they look like. Um, So it wouldn't necessarily be me going out of my way to show kindness I just did find myself wanting to because of the the lack of it in the air. The air felt different. It really did. When we left the house a few times after the results, I remember things feeling really weird. And we live in a place that is quite multicultural. The air was infused with racism. Racism. A new element that the Brexit vote had released into the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I get that. But then in that case, it's just maintain the same baseline of civility and kindness yeah. that you already had. But I guess I understand the criticism of that is that if the people who are kind and who do support immigration and particularly immigrants themselves, if they don't make a conspicuous effort to to show kindness then there's no kind of counterbalance to the bigots that are making a very conspicuous effort to show hatred exactly so maybe it's a case that we do have to overcompensate a little bit because of that you're very you're right maybe that's what it is i couldn't i didn't have that that side of it in my mind you know the um the right way to kind of say why I wanted to overcompensate. But I really did feel it, and I feel like other people did too. Talking to people on social media, it was like, I don't want people to think I'm a part of that because I'm not. It really is... I mean, in a way, and I feel like I say this about a lot of things, um, like, oh, it really shocked me or surprised me that, that this happened. But actually, in a way, it didn't because people can be scum, you know? There's a lot of scumbags out there. Taking a bold stance, anti-scumbag stance. Yeah, and I feel like they're the ones who went and voted. And it just really, really just upset the world. If there's any (laughs) pro-Brexit listeners right now, their ears are going to be... Please stop listening. No, I'm joking. How dare you? (laughs) That was too far. Our four-person listenership is just half to, to two. I take that back. A lot of people have different reasons for wanting to vote Leave. And like I said before, not everyone who voted Leave is a hateful bastard. But... Easy does it. A good percentage of them were. I think it's dangerous to make those generalizations. because it then is. I'm just, I'm just caught up in the... It's understandable that you feel strongly yeah. and so emotions kind of run over and you say... Because you... I understand that kind of sentiment of... I want to do everything I can to show yeah. people that I I don't feel this, you know, hateful way. Like, I get that. Well, not even that I don't feel this hateful way, that actually the world is not made up of hateful people. There are hateful people, but there are a lot of people who aren't hateful, who are kind, who would open themselves and their communities up to wh- whoever, whoever wants to join you know, and I think it was just a case of wanting to remind people after this horrible result and these extra hate crimes that it's really difficult and hard what someone might be going through because of that. But look, look what's here too. Look at all this love and this kindness. I just feel like that needed to be amplified a little bit. And this whole safety pin thing, I just kind of latched onto it as a way to do that. And I mean, I didn't do the safety pin thing, just to be clear, because, well, 
you have an aversion to sharp things. And I don't like to leave that. Yeah, there's not a lot of opportunities for us to go out and flaunt our safety pins. But, you know, and of course, there's always a. I did get caught up a little bit in thinking, I have to decide whether I want to do it because now I've seen it. The choice is kind of forced on you. I have to do it because. Isn't that the same thing as the Facebook chain mails, though? It's like it. It gives you that false dilemma of like, if you don't do this, then you're actively supporting the yeah, other side. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's not nece- necessarily true. And then there's the whole, by you not deciding, you are deciding. And so, but I didn't end up doing it and it doesn't look like it became a big thing. I think it really was just a good reaction to the hate. Let's do something good. Let's show people that, you know, people can be nice, basically. Like I said, I admire, even though I don't think this is an av- or I guess it didn't turn out to be one, but even at the time when this was kind of at its genesis, I would have said, I don't think this is going to be a very effectual campaign for many reasons. The most obvious one being, on a practical sense, a safety pin is not a very large and conspicuous thing. Mm. So you're not going to be able to see a lot of the time where how many people are, are taking part in this campaign. It should have been like a, you know, like a button or something like that, or a patch. Something that's like obvious. You More scan obvious. a crowd and you see how many people are taking yeah. part. Yeah, but at the same time, there was a reason why it wasn't going to be this obvious "I stand with you" or you know hashtag kind of mentality to it, because it was supposed to just be the people that know know, and they know it's safe. Like a secret society. Yeah, but the people that you know, the hateful people that don't know won't know what it is because you know there could be like an old lady wearing a safety pin and then what happens she gets like beaten up by a gang of fucking haters because they know what the safety pin means and that was another reason why it was kind of supposed to be like inconspicuous i get that you don't want to put people in danger if they have to come into contact with hateful people who might resort to violence so yeah i i like the idea behind it and I and to a certain extent, I have sympathy with the kind of like I know this is not really going to amount to anything significant, but I have to try and do something because I feel yeah. so strongly against this negativity. So yeah, I mean, but like you said, it didn't it didn't amount to anything. I don't think it really became this massive thing because I haven't heard of it again. But who knows? In big cities, it might have been. You know, it would have been interested if we still live at London at the set, at the time. Um, I said that those words did not come out correctly. <laughs> if we'd have still lived in London at the time, it would have been interesting to be on the tube, for instance, and to see if there were people wearing it. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't and I didn't. So you see someone know. else with a safety pin and you just like do a, a knowing smile to them. I feel like that would have been so cool. Like to actually see lots of people wearing it. And then to just kind of smile to yourself and be like, look, people are nice. People do care. People are kind. They're not hateful. Well, that's why it's, that's kind of makes it sad that it didn't turn in, it didn't snowball yeah. into like a big nationwide both sides thing. To it. That would have been cool to see if it had been like this high adoption rate and it had been this kind of um, unified rebuke to the kind Safety of. Safety pins sell out all across yeah, the UK. They, but then the counter. <laughs> Issue would be, 
people start selling safety pins for like ten pounds. Yes. On eBay. Oh my god. Yeah. And then people start putting little shortage. designs on the ends of them. And oh man, it could have oh turned so bad. What if we turn this into? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So those are my thoughts on it. Really, like, it just really stood out to me even now. Like, like I said, I saw it originally after the Brexit result, and I saw it again yesterday. But again, it really kind of stood out, and I just wanted to know what you thought about it. If there was a renewal of that sentiment and there was a new campaign where it was like, we're going to have something more visible, like a big red button that says, "We, I support immigration and the right of immigrants to be safe and happy, would you, knowing how you feel about not partaking in the first one, where there might be like a little twinge of regret, would you then take part in... Yeah, I would. Because definitely talking it out with someone... And really kind of getting to feel what you actually think about it and how you feel about it. I would have liked to have done that and I hope people did do that. And if that came around again, I would do it. Okay. Would you? Long dead air. (laughs) I'm just thinking about it. I don't, I generally kind of instinctually have an aversion to like organize campaigns for something because you do get co-opted into whoever makes the Facebook page or whoever makes the website, they kind of get to set the agenda. Like it might start off, first of all, this, you know, this nice fuzzy message of everyone wears this safety pin to, to basically convey the, the very simple message that we, we support the right of immigrants to be safe. But then down the road, you know, the, the few people who started this campaign, then they add some other message about what it's about and it kind of evolves into this thing that you didn't want to be a part of. You get co-opted into a message that you you know <clears throat> someone is just using the numbers they've generated to kind of prop up the, the later message they they come to adopt. I think that's partly your booking against the man instinct. It could be, yeah, for not wanting all these like rules and you know. I fight for this, but actually I've got to fight for it a certain way, and that's your. You know, you're not into that. And so I think that's just that kicking in as your response to it. Well, like I said, I, I do see the worth of, of, of a campaign like this where it kind of um, it gets everyone together as like a unified front. But yeah. like I said to you, if you just as an individual and outside of any kind of organized campaign, you can just continue to be civil and yeah. kind to people. Of course. And that will have its effect. So, yeah, that was an interesting topic. That's a nice note to end that topic on. Yeah. Just be kind, kids. Just be kind. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, what's your yeah. second topic? My second topic is... I feel like one day we're going to come to do this and we're like, what's your topic? And it's going to be really outrageous and dark and just like, I'm going to be shocked and have no words in response. Like, my topic is like... How good is Mein Kampf? You're going to be trolling. Why is no one talking about how good Mein Kampf is? (laughs) It's an underrated gem. You think that's going to be my topic? Yeah. Well, this next topic is kind of controversial, so you might get your wish, especially depending on how our stances come out about it. So I read an interesting article on the New York Times, basically documenting the controversy which arose when an author, and I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, 
I think it's Lionel Shriver. She's mm-hmm. a female author. I'm not familiar with her work. Okay. She gave a speech to a writer's festival in Australia. And the kind of thesis of her speech was, as a writer of fiction, you need to constantly employ, quote-unquote, cultural appropriation at every turn, unless you're content with only writing things that mirror your own first-hand experience, your own, the knowledge that you have of your own culture, your own kind of circumstances. And there was a big backlash to her saying this. Oh, wow. Other writers walked out <clears throat> mid-session of her speech and then wrote kind of very um, angry responses online. The festival itself distanced themselves from her comments and hastily organized a rebuttal session where the people who had disagreed with her got kind of the airtime to, you know, kind of be angry at her and say why they they thought what she said was nonsense. And so, yeah, I thought this was an interesting... Yeah. This is a debate that's going on right now. And so I thought it would be interesting to talk about. I feel like I've got a million things I want to say. First of all, I think this conversation... I think it's fair to say I know this conversation is going to be less about whether cultural appropriation is right in your everyday life and more, you know, you need to make sure it's understood that what we mean is cultural appropriation when it comes to art, fiction especially. Um, At least that's what I think. I agree with her. I mean, I don't, you haven't given me her quotes yet, but just straight away I'm like, well, I agree because just like when I'm a writer and you're a writer and just like when I'm writing if I'm writing about someone horrible or like a, a villain like a classic villain an axe murderer. yeah an axe murderer you know I'm not saying I want to be an axe murderer I'm not saying I am an axe murderer I'm not saying you don't know anything about axe murdering exactly. basically like there's nothing about that that I want to be or that I agree with that doesn't mean that I can't write it. That doesn't mean that I can't, you know, I obviously can't get into the head of an axe murder because I'm not one. But things like that, it's easy to kind of let your imagination fill in all the things that you don't know. There are also ways to research things. You can speak to people about their experiences. Um, I mean, what are some of the things that she actually said? So... After I read the article documenting the drama that had arose, in that article they only really kind of quote her very briefly and then they paraphrase the rest of what she said. So I wanted to look up the whole transcript of her speech to see actually what she said. And so I found a full transcript of what she said on The Guardian and I read through it. And basically her point was, she kind of framed it like this. She was like, if I want to write a character who is not a 52-year-old white woman from North Carolina, which is how she described herself, then inherently it has to be an act of imagination. It has to be an act of taking someone else's experiences, at least in terms of how you imagine them to be, and employing them in your work, your art, to service the plot, to service Mm -hmm. the themes, to service what you're trying to get across, what the world you're trying to build. 
And so she was basically saying that cultural appropriation is harmless. It's just a necessary act of fiction making. Yeah. She said it in a very provocative kind of tongue-in-cheek way, which I think probably made a lot of people in the audience chafe at her core point. Yeah. But that was essentially what she was saying. Well, there's writing about um, certain people and certain experiences and um, employing cultural appropriation, and then there's playing into stereotypes. And I think at some point you have to make a decision about whether you are going to be someone who plays into stereotypes or not, whether you're going to use that responsibly or not responsibly. Um, And so I think you have to decide where you want to be, and she has obviously decided that she is on the side of adopting whatever you need to adopt to kind of get the the story across. Um, But I have no, like, she, it seems like she's saying that, like, and she's not held responsible for that kind of like the message of that or whatever because she employs that cultural appropriation. It's almost like she's saying, well, then it doesn't matter what people take from it or what it says um, in the sense that you can't be every character in your story. Like she's saying, if you want to write about anything other than yourself, you have to kind of employ these things and I'm not just talking about cultural appropriation you have to kind of get into the heads of all different types of people and employ all different types of things and so I feel like I don't know there comes a point where you have to decide what you want to be if you're someone who says I want to write about this and I want about it write about it in this way I don't want to do any research I'm going to say whatever I want to say it doesn't matter what necessarily people take from it because I don't want to be held responsible for what people might interpret from my fiction or my art and that's the type of artist that you're going to be and I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that because not all art has to be this responsible informative three-dimensional thing it can be a snippet of a dream it can be a one second lie it can be a two-hour film about you know nothing but made-up stories from children like it could be anything and everything and that is the beauty of art and fiction and make-believe it can be as nice or as horrible as you want it to be it can be anything, basically. Exactly. And I don't think... When people start to put rules into art, that's when it doesn't... It's not art anymore. Yeah, I I basically had the same reaction. The proposition she was making as an artist to the world of, of artists, I, I found I agreed with. Yeah. She was basically saying that fiction is inherently an act of imagination otherwise it would be non-fiction it would be memoir and so you have to put yourself in someone else's shoes to make that character and you have to do that over and over and over as you're creating a world and you're not going to always have personal experience that corresponds to that character's circumstances that character's culture so at some point, imagination has to fill in the gaps. Not, nobody knows everything. Yeah. So at some point, you have to say, well, I don't know what it was like to be a black man in the South in the 60s, but I'm going to try and imagine it. 
and I'm going to write what my imagination produces in that way. And if you were going to do that responsibly, then you would research and you would hope to get to speak to people who lived in that time or whatever. Obviously, that goes back to what I'm saying in terms of whether you want to do that responsibly or not. That's up to you. But that depends on what type of artist you want to be. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether she is saying in my fiction, I can employ whatever I want to employ, but I'm not necessarily saying this is right or wrong in like real life within this conversation. I'm not discussing whether cultural appropriation is right or wrong in daily life. I'm trying to talk about whether it's right or wrong in the world of fiction and art and the types of things you should or shouldn't be allowed to talk about, whether you're that um, that person or not that person whether you need to put yourself into someone else's shoes or not, and then whether you think it's okay for you to just insert yourself into those things. I mean, do you think she was saying that, like... Do, I mean, it sounds like she was just saying it within her fiction, but do you think she was trying to kind of... I mean, you said that it did come across as provocative. Do you think she was trying to get this kind of harsh... She did have a very kind of traditional anti-political correctness stance that ran through her kind of ideas but I think ultimately what she was saying did correspond to the realm of art she was saying like you kind of alluded to I think she was chafing against what a lot of artists instinctually chafe against which is other people trying to impose rules on what you can and cannot create yeah And I think that's a fair response for an artist to have. And like you said, I think the key point is, to go back to what I said, if you are to write about, if you are to write a fictional story about a black man in the South in the 60s, it's not necessarily, it shouldn't be interpreted as you saying, this is what it was like in the 60s, unless that is an explicit statement you attach to the, the book. It should just be seen as, this is what this person imagines it was like based on the fragments of information or possibly no fragments of information that they have to draw upon but then you need to decide as an artist whether or not you think that that's responsible or not whether or not you are okay with the fact that that might be a truth or a lie but and then of course it comes down to well it's fiction, so you could say it's all a lie and that's okay because it's fiction, it's a story, and it is all make-believe. Um, I don't know. I know that if someone was trying to say I couldn't write about a certain experience and I wanted to write about this experience, I know that I would book against that. I would want to be able to do it because, like I kind of said before, There shouldn't be rules when it comes to this type of thing. I mean, you should be able to create whatever you want to create, whether you're saying it's a good thing or a bad thing or whatever. Like, I mean, I mean, I personally do tend to write from experience anyway, but there are obviously times when I write characters opposite myself and they're nothing like me. And, you know, a massive part of that is imagination and what you have seen yeah, because everyone has to base portrayals like that on good and bad information they have. You have some good information probably where you've seen 
the actual people you're referring to talk about their experience. But then clouding your mind, you also have the bad information of stereotypes and just yeah. kind of myths and that society stuff like that. is kind of made up to be these real things when they're not but that all comes down to accepting the fallibility of the artist like i said no artist knows everything about everything on earth yeah so at some point they get your imagination is going to have to be the cement that sticks together the actual bricks of knowledge you have yeah and that's fine what it comes down to for me is the distinction you drew between a responsible and an irresponsible artist, potentially. I think that can be a fair one, but it's about what you are claiming to represent. If you are claiming to accurately, more or less accurately, represent what it was like to be this person in this circumstance, then you open yourself up to that criticism. But if you aren't just saying that this is a product of my imagination. It draws on some information that I have, some knowledge, and the rest of it is just, you know, pure fantasy that I've drawn up in my mind. Then I think you can't really be open to the criticism of you're misrepresenting an experience because you're not claiming to do that. That's what someone else is putting on your work. It's almost like saying... Saying the word fiction and it being under fiction isn't enough. You've almost got to then put it into this subcategory of, no, it really is fiction. Every single thing is fiction. Every single thing is made up. You know, take take from that what you will. So it's it's like people need to be told a certain amount of information before they go into something. Um and then, of course, they need to be told whether it's true or a lie. But being fiction should be enough to let people know that what they're reading might be completely false because it's fiction. It's almost like when you... Okay, when you watch, like, a sci-fi movie that's set in 500 years, I know a lot of that stuff is sometimes based on real science if we could do this, this is how we would do it. And they have scientists on their team and researchers on their team. But to be honest, for most people going into that movie who don't know that science, they don't know whether that's true or not. And obviously some things are completely false because we can't do them and they're not real. Um, and you go into that knowing that it's not real because it's set in a million years and half of this stuff is completely impossible and you don't need that extra label of this is not real this is not true so I don't know why you need it when going into just regular fiction I mean I don't know why you need everything to be accounted for I guess is what I'm saying well some people just have those kind of emotional sore points where if they see a portrayal of a minority suffering police violence, for example, and they are a minority and they've suffered police violence, even if it's a fictional portrayal, they might have that kind of gut reaction of like, this is not yours to yeah. you know, use in your fiction. It happened to me and it was horrendous. And you shouldn't be then trying to portray it in, from a place of ignorance. Yeah. I'm going to liken this to... People who write about rape when they haven't ever been raped. Sure. Keeping things nice and light, I see. <laughs> like you were saying earlier, 
you have to, at a certain point, you have to say, well, my imagination's going to take over. And <clears throat> when you were talking about being a victim of something, it made me think of that because that is a loud thing as well. That is a loud response from a certain group of people who have been hurt in a way only they can know, you know? Um, And that is kind of like um, sore and it's hard and it's horrible and it's painful for a lot of people. And I'm not saying that, oh, a 52-year-old white woman can write 100% about a 20-year-old black man from New York. Like, her experience is completely different to his. But I don't think that she shouldn't be able to write about it either. So while I agree with her, for me as a writer... I'm saying I don't want rules and I don't want people to tell me what I can and can't write about. But I know for myself there are certain places I wouldn't go. Because I would like to be able to experience certain things that fall under that. I would want to be able to know at to least... have that base of knowledge, yeah. And I guess that whole idea of, well, being able to write about an axe murderer... I think because... One is a really human experience of being a minority or being a victim of something. Whereas, like, murder now has almost become this, you know, you see it in everything. Like, you know, it's happening in almost every show, every movie, like, in video games. It's almost, like, really, like, normal when someone gets murdered. And, um, And you can kind of step away from that in a way that you can't really step away from like seeing people suffer yeah for hundreds and hundreds of years yeah in really hard horrible real ways and i might not have articulated that very well but it's a really hard thing to talk about because you don't want to ever hurt anyone unless you do want to hurt someone but that's a different thing and you're an axe murderer yeah (laughs) comes full circle but even as an artist and wanting to be able to not have rules and stuff, I still would never want to hurt anyone. And so that's why earlier I was really putting the emphasis on responsibility. You've got to decide whether you're going to take responsibility for things or not. It sounds like she's saying, I'm not. I want to be able to employ whatever I need to employ to get my point across. I think the line that most people kind of bring up in response to what you're saying is, that the distinction is whether or not it's quote-unquote exploitive. And that is obviously a different, a difficult thing to judge because you can't see inside someone's head, you can't see someone's motives. Yeah. But the distinction, I think, would be someone in good faith basically trying to responsibly, maturely deal with a, a very difficult subject like rape and they try to incorporate it in their story in a very in a way that kind of emphasizes its, you know, horrificness, its severity, that would not be exploitative. But then someone who just throws in a rape scene because they know, and it's kind of a a lazy portrayal, it doesn't really focus on how um, horrible it is. They just do it because they know that at this point in the plot, I want a scene that kind of emotionally shocks the reader. 
that would kind of be exploitative because you're just using the reality of rape as a prop. And then you don't really deal with any of the aftermath. You've just used the actual scene, like the rape scene, as being this horrible traumatic thing that you know is going to get a good reaction from people. And then you don't deal with the consequences of that in any way. Yeah, I can see what you're saying, like the two distinctions. So, yeah, that was a, a heavy topic. And I think it's not even as heavy as your next topic's going to be. I think my next topic is heavy in a different type of way. It's not as... Um, this is almost just like a fact of life. Whereas those things that we were talking about don't need to be a fact of life. They're just these horrible things that have happened and are happening. And we wish they would be different. I guess... Okay, so my next topic is... I saw a few quotes from a video of Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about the afterlife and one of the quotes was that he said it's having the knowledge that I'm going to die which creates the focus that I bring to being alive the urgency of accomplishment the need to express love now not later because this is it there is no later and this really like stopped me in my track because people are always talking about how life's so short and you know you only get one life and you need to just live it but I don't see it that way I want to see it that way or rather I wish I had the chance to see it that way but regardless of knowing that you could die any moment you could die any day now and that most people live to a certain age and not past that that doesn't kind of put an urgency into me. It doesn't make, it doesn't kickstart me. And I don't know whether that's because I am someone who lives with depression and anxiety and is kind of riddled with all these like fears and emotions that are constantly kind of overpowering everything else. But to me, I've come to realize, and this is kind of really heavy in a way is that sometimes when I'm fully in depressed mode, it's almost like I can't be happy because I know I'm going to die. Long, awkward silence (laughs) as we consider the profound implications of that statement. Yeah, that is extremely heavy. Yeah. and before you say anything, that's the bitch about depression, is that it doesn't let you see the other side. It doesn't let you then say, but don't you get don't you get it then? Is that you do only have one life, and because you're going to die, you should be living it. But depression doesn't let you see that. And I can say that now because I'm in my up mode, is what I call it. And when I'm in my up mode, I can see things rationally and normally, and I can see all the amazingness. But when I'm in my down mode, when I've crashed, which is really often, that's how I think. That's how I feel. I've decided that it's really difficult to be happy because I know I'm not I'm not going to be here forever. I kind of feel that sometimes I do feel that futility of at some point in the not too distant future in relative terms. I'm going to be dead and everyone who has ever known me is going to be dead and probably every record of my existence is going to be long gone. And so... Except this podcast. Yeah, this is like... (laughs) 
This is our capsule, our time capsule. It's like the binary is like drilled into Mars rock. Um, Yeah. And so it's almost kind of like, what's the point? That and I think that is something that a lot of people kind of wrestle with. It's like what what is the point if I am going to die? Like and yeah, that is kind of the baseline that you have to struggle against because if you give into that, you'll never try to realise any ambitions. You'll never try to to show kindness to other people. You'll never try to do any of the things that make life worthwhile from our standpoints. There are different levels of depression. There are different levels of sadness and there are different actual like diagnoses and like clinical things. You can be depressed for a lot of reasons. So things could have happened. A trauma could have kickstarted it. Um, you could all of a sudden be diagnosed with a medical condition and depression is a side effect. Um, someone may have died and that from then on you were a depressed person or like me you could have been depressed from the very beginning um whether you can say you were born with it or not um and then whether you can say everything that happens in your life contributes to that depression well all the negative things anyway and so I think maybe they're only kind of this way of thinking if you are kind of a deeply kind of like some people can't reconcile the fact that we're alive now and we're going to die and that people do die they just cannot reconcile it and I think I'm one of those people death is terrifying and I think even when you don't realise it, it's on your mind all the time. And I think it really does have the ability to stop you from living in its really messed up, twisted way. And so I want to be like Neil deGrasse Tyson, grabbing life by the big meaty balls. And yeah, and saying yes, I'm going to fucking do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and it's going to be amazing and I'm going to live until I'm 111 and it's going to, every second of it is going to have been fucking awesome. Or I can continue, continue to struggle until I'm 79 and then die. Like, you know what I mean? So these are just my thoughts on the initial thing. I just thought it was really interesting the way people see things and how... It's the pursuit of happiness, basically. Well, I think you make a good point in that I think a lot of people, they, the way our brains work, we're just not equipped to really comprehend the reality of death. Like the way society is set up now, you're not around death. People go into special hospital wars to die. And then they're put in a box. You all sing hymns around the box. And then the box is put in the ground. You're never really... For most people, they'd never really come face to face with the reality of a human body going from a state of being alive to a state of being what we consider death. And so sitting here, it's, it's so difficult to imagine what it means for me to be dead. I know, only know what it means for me to be alive. I know for sure that I'm going to die. A hundred years from now, 
it's it's basically certain that I will be dead. I know that logically as a fact, but it, like you said, it doesn't somehow, even though it's the most profound thing in the world, it somehow doesn't seem to have the power to motivate me in a commensurately profound way. There's that side of it, and then there's the side of, like, I lie awake at night imagining my whole life up until that moment of death. And then the thought of me being, like, asleep but dead and never, ever, ever waking up again is, like, the most terrifying and confusing but real thing I've ever known. It's going to happen. It's going to happen and I don't want it to happen. And it could happen actually any moment now for any number of crazy, like wicked crazy reasons. And I don't want it to. And that constant anxiety of whether, how things are going to play out, why they're going to play out, when they're going to play out, stops me from doing certain things, I guess. Or at least that's what I'm trying to explore. I have the opposite kind of situation where I don't... I think a lot about the reality of I'm going to die, but in my mind I always frame it in like 80 years you're going to be dead. I don't really think about the reality of I could die. I literally could die in the next second. Like I could have a brain aneurysm and be dead. Like, I don't think about that. And I think if I did think about it too much, it would become, like you said, this crippling influence where everything is is cast in the gloom of this knowledge that one misstep, or not even a misstep, you it, it might not even be something that you did. It could just be something that happens to you. One event like that, and you're, you're gone. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You can't control every external... Um, factor in your life i feel like earlier i was almost saying that that could be a big reason for some people's depression i didn't necessarily mean it like that i just sometimes when i am feeling really like down and i've crashed and everything is hopeless and i'm in despair like some things do feel like that and that's kind of rudy's the cat is trying to like shit all over my deep (laughs) (laughs) he's trying to scale the kitchen counters unsuccessfully as of yet yeah so i wasn't necessarily saying that like that's a reason why some people can be depressed although it obviously is can be a reason it just really struck me when i saw it i was like whoa i already kind of have those thoughts of like death could be here at any moment and that's sometimes why I can't turn the depression into happy. But I think ultimately what I have to realise is, is that I can't control the depression and I have to just accept that. But in the meantime, you try to find reasons for it, even when there, you know, logically is not a reason. But I, I would say, just to offer a counterpoint, there is that kind of standpoint of what is there to be afraid of in death? Because you didn't suffer before you were born. You just didn't exist. And as soon as your brain turns off, you're not going to know that you're dead. You're just going to be dead. You're not When you go to sleep and you have a dreamless sleep, a completely dreamless sleep, you shut your eyes at 9pm and you open them at 7am 
and that period is just a void but you don't anguish over that and that is essentially what death is going to be like if our scientific ideas about the human body and consciousness are right you said we don't suffer before we're born and you know what it made me think of scientology how so because i was gonna say what if we did suffer before we're born and that's why some people are so um struggle in their life throughout their life so much what if them trying to pinpoint a trauma and work on it and move past it and get better is really them trying to pinpoint something from past life and then I was like shit down the Scientology rabbit hole like that is something a part of Scientology right right? where they kind of think their past lives are some kind of theological tenant but there's a way of thinking about everything it just made me think of it when you said we didn't suffer before we were born well it ties into religion neatly because it does seem on the face of it so plain that the reason why so many major religions have a component of a afterlife and particularly a good afterlife if you fulfill the religion's criteria of Mm. of goodness in life is because we fear death everyone fears Mm. death in some way at some point in their life and so it does seem like such a simple line to draw between a and b of this is why there's a component of the afterlife in so many of these religions i think a scary part of it is the nothingness but i think what we forget is that we're not going to know it's a nothingness just like sleep when we have a dreamless sleep we're not we don't spend the nine hours or however long it is that you're asleep thinking nothing's happening i'm alone in the dark and nothing's happening you just the nine hours passes and then you wake up um and i think sometimes you can forget that when you think death might be nothing but actually i'm not going to know it's nothing it's just going to be nothing and that's also hard, knowing that it's just going to be over. Everything's, the party goes on without yeah. you. And so all these all these components are hard. Whether you, Whichever way you think about it, it's a hard, hard thing, confusing thing to accept. And I think that's probably why it weighs so heavy on some people. But I think the ideal midpoint is so delicate, so tenuous, so hard to grasp. And it would be being kind of motivated by the knowledge that death is coming so that you live your life to the full but Mm. not being so overwhelmed and fearful of death that you get strangled by your own sense of um, insignificance and futility somewhere in between those two poles lies a happy medium where you can take advantage of the life that you have but that is obviously much much harder than it sounds. It's so hard to achieve for a lot of people. It really is. But it's definitely something to think about. I mean, and the more, obviously, we can explore and figure out um, about the afterlife. I mean, we don't know anything. If there is I mean, one. Who knows in, like, another however many million years, like, we're going we're gonna to know the secrets Well, consciousness as a phenomenon is still so mysterious to us that 
you we're still at such an early point in discovering what consciousness is that it, you almost can posit a possibility that consciousness is divorced from the material world and say passes between a person on the verge of death and a I don't know a baby about to be born and in that way you have the reality of reincarnation that a lot of religions talk about like we can there is kind of almost still kind of room in our scientific ignorance to to slip in that like comforting idea but as we learn more and more about consciousness and we nail down exactly how our neurons produce this subjective experience of being awake and noticing stimuli around us once that knowledge reaches a more advanced state there's not really going to be any loopholes we can take advantage of it's going to be the cold hard absolute reality of as soon as your brain turns off you're gone you were here for 88 years and seven months and six days and that was the amount of consciousness you had and it terminated absolutely at this point and that is terrifying but there's nothing you can do about it when you said about the baby being born it made me think imagine if you could have that memory of the just before and then waking up as a baby and that you could carry that through life so you just have this one this one additional memory of being a dying man or woman and it's like this fuzzy are you writing a script Wait, right now? Wait, what do you mean being a dying man or a woman? Are you talking about a before, like a past life? Yeah, I thought you were saying that basically everyone as they go through their life would have this kind of additional memory that they can't account for where they can remember the last moments of their previous life when they were I think you're about to die. No, this could I, be a good film. I meant just the moment of when you're not a person and then you are a person. But how would you, how could you have a memory of nothing? Well, that's what I mean. Really, you're just having the memory of waking up. Right, okay, yeah. As a baby. And who says we don't? I mean, most people, their earliest memory is like three. And then you don't have any memories before that. But what if, as like a three-year-old, you have the memory of waking up? You just can't articulate it because you're three. And then you lose it And then it you as lose you it older. as you get older. And maybe that's a point of trauma. Maybe you were nothing. Maybe you do know that there's a nothing and you're in the nothing and then you wake up. And that maybe that's where we come in like screaming and crying because we were in nothing and now we're something. But you weren't in nothing in your mother's womb. You were in nothing before you were a ball of cells. Well, I guess that's like a spiritual thing, though, isn't it? Not to poke holes into your theory. You know what I mean? I just thought that was interesting. What if we had that first memory? And maybe we did. Like, that's just a really interesting... This is you writing a counter script to mine. We're both going to have to try and sell it to some... It's like when, you know, like... Movie producer. One movie, there's always a movie about something, but there's always a second movie about the same thing that comes out the same time, and one's always better. Has less of a budget, has a lower quality of star power. One's always, like, in the running for an Oscar, and one's, And the other one's, like, straight to DVD. Yeah. Yeah. You went, like, really extreme with it. Straight to DVD. (laughs) That's like the, I was just like a cute little indie movie and you're like, yeah. I like the bin. extremes, okay. <laughs> so the other thing I would say is 
if at least on an intellectual level on a kind of cold logical level we can accept that dying or at least dying is not good obviously because you experience dying but death the state of death if it can even be so called is not a bad thing why do we why does it hurt so much when people we know die because they're not suffering anymore but we still feel like something bad is has happened to them that it'd be better if they were alive yeah well i guess because we don't know we're me and you right now in this conversation are operating on the fact that or on the belief that nothing happens after you die but so many people believe that things do happen after you die whether it's you go to a heaven or a hell whether it's you are you are reborn as something else and then you have to experience that life whether it's good or bad or whether you're reborn as a person so obviously if you're reborn as a person we pretty much know you don't know it that you were in a past life unless we do subscribe to that belief that our traumas are from our past lives this belief that you fabricated four minutes ago yeah you're referring to it's like but what if you were reborn as something else like an animal and you do know that you were a person we don't know this because animals can't speak Okay, maybe now I, I understand. Think there's other reasons it. why we don't know that, but yeah, <laughs> one of the reasons I guess is kind of that dogs don't tell you that they were. I think a tax maybe accountant. this is a good point to start. Wrapping when you up. start sounding crazy, it's a good point to say, okay, maybe this conversation's finished for another time. <laughs> the funny part is, I can I can almost hear our like upbeat, jaunty intro and outro music that's going to follow this like. <laughs> dark somber conversation about the reality of the inescapable (laughs) reality of death but yeah this is probably a good time to to wrap up our conversation wow that was our first the first of many podcast guys how do you feel you're officially a podcaster with all the i feel good the glamour and the uh isn't it weird to know people could have just listened to all that or someone, so at least one person is going to listen to the podcast. We know well, we we're hope. pretty, we're pretty so. sure about that. So you know that is gonna. It is weird, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it's like if someone was just sitting in the room, but they didn't say didn't, anything the whole that's time. Creepy. It is a little bit creepy. Yeah, <laughs> we're not trying to disparage you, <laughs> p- potential listener. Okay, I think it's time then because the cat's trying to escape again. He's trying to escape into the past life no he says i used to be i used to live in ireland and i want to get back there i was gonna say he used to be batman because he's got but batman's not real hey batman could be totally real and so batman was reincarnated as a cat yeah and that's where he's trying to get out because he sees a bat signal so yeah there are a few things to say to wrap up the first is obviously that I hope this experiment, this first podcast has gone well and you enjoyed it. You got something out of it. We really do hope you enjoyed it because we really enjoyed talking about lots of different topics that interest us and we hope they interest you. It was a strange and scary and kind of... Anxiety-filled, but fun at the same time. Yeah, it was definitely a new experience. So we will be releasing this podcast every Monday. Um, it's going to be a weekly podcast, but there occasionally may be bonus episodes in between the Mondays. We'll see how that goes. Um, 
you can find the podcast on iTunes or you can go to artatpodcast.com, which is A-R-T-A-T podcast.com. The initials of after reading this and that. And that website currently redirects to our SoundCloud page, which is where we host the podcast. If you want to email us any feedback or comments or critiques, and I'm sure there's going to be some <laughs> interesting critiques, email us at artatpodcast at gmail.com. And that's the same initialization. Um, and I guess lastly, and I know it's kind of become a cliche to say that you're probably tired of hearing this. I'm going to go one meta layer deeper and say I know you're tired of being told that you're tired of hearing this and then being told <laughs> it anyway. And if, it, if this is just white noise to you, then fair enough. There's nothing we can do about that. But if you did enjoy the podcast and you do want to do something to help us out, take 60 seconds out of your day, help support the podcast while we're still on the ground floor. If you could rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, that has a disproportionately large effect on the visibility of new podcasts. So if you did that, that would really help us out. We would really appreciate it so much. And even though he said all the things that you're supposed to say to go along with it, I'm going to add another layer onto that and be like, no, it really does mean something. And we would just love it. And it really would only take a few seconds and it would really count. And yeah, we will, I'll bake you a cake. How about that? I'll bake you a cake. For every single person who does it? send it to you. I'll eat it myself because I'm that type of But you'll of think about their username. But I will think about you. Oh, I could write your username and icing on top of it. But then I would still eat it. You are so setting up a lot of potential yeah. labour for yourself if we get like I 50 just reviews. Cake, honestly. Let's be real. Sure. Cake is pretty awesome. Okay. So yeah, if you could do that, that would help us out. And if you could share the podcast with anyone you know who you think might like it, that would help us out Sharing a lot. Sharing is caring, kids. Sharing is caring. So you are our day one listeners, essentially. Yay! And so you can really have a big effect in, in helping us build the podcast We're just into what babies. we want to be. We're just little babies. Yeah, with, little kitty babies. With memories of our past podcasts, <laughs> our past life podcasts. You had to bring it back around. That's a throwback yeah. to 12 minutes ago. <laughs> so yeah, this was an interesting experiment. We'll see how it progresses and builds as we continue to release podcasts and hopefully you'll be listening to us next week yeah yeah for listening to the podcast the music used during the intro and outro was kindly provided by christopher from soundslikeanearful.com see you next episode